Hi everybody and welcome to the October edition of ANZ's Agri-Commodity Insights. Um, what a fantastic time of the year it is being spring and we alluded to the early signs of spring in our last edition but um, gee when springs are coming in in a fuller way and you've got a really encouraging macro environment supporting uh, some pretty decent weather conditions as well. Uh, it's a great time in farming. Uh, really welcome rain in the last five days for a lot of broadacre Australia, particularly the southeastern segment. Um, this will bolster, finish, save a lot of winter crop, depending on where you are, uh, almost getting in the way potentially in some places as well. Uh, and with the forecast to be relatively warm and wet through to December, I guess what we really want is our, our spring to deliver the finish to crops, but not get in the way of quality as we get into harvest. Um, broadacre commodity prices continue to impress, um, particularly with such a big crop coming in for Australia, might dampen commodity markets in, in normal terms. That doesn't seem to be the case. We've got demand remaining really strong in both our domestic and global settings. And whilst COVID has its complexities and difficulties still, vaccination-led mobility uh, potentially sees more and more consumers out spending and consuming. And it'll be interesting to see what that does to our market as well. Uh, so it's wet. Our water storages are relatively healthy. The outlook's good. We can expect pretty strong uh, feed availability through the spring and into summer. We'd particularly like a, a, an early wet in the north as well to, to kick that summer season through. So we'll just have to wait a little bit longer to see on that one. Um, underneath the farming side of things, the cost of finance uh, is, is super low. Uh, the availability of credit remains really strong. Profitability in farming is very high and rural values continue to strengthen. So I guess everybody's question is, why does the top of the market keep giving away to a new top in the market? I guess we've just continued to see strong demand from multiple markets matched by what is a fairly widespread supply constraint playing out in the system. If we think of the cattle herd, the sheep flock, both rebuilding here. Uh, if we think of our key competitor issues like a, a Brazil with their more recent BSE concerns and being kept from a lot of key global markets, the Argentinian export bans uh, looking to uh, suppress pressure on local food prices. We've got a Northern Hemisphere crop failure really playing into uh, the benefit of the southern hemisphere now and so that's a bit of i think that's a bit of cream on the cake at the moment particularly if you add in a bit of COVID buying in a lot of um markets where where food security is more of an issue um i think just hard to see a better alignment of the planets and um this might all take a while to stabilize in some way and so the outlook remains really quite good and if generally thought of being a glass half full for all of the opportunities and negativities in agri playing out right now. I think the glass is just getting fuller. Um, we do have some not quite right issues um, that are possibilities or even current realities still, of course. Um, we have COVID to deal with continually, uh, whether that's on farm and uh, with authorised workers, whether it's cross-border moving um, produce and people around to follow our season, whether it's supply chain restrictions on density limits, whether it's uh, labour availability, um, the risk of a shutdown, what that would mean for a business and all of the increased supply chain costs that go with all of that uh, are still very real. Um, I think a lot of this puts pressure on, on retail food prices, which we'll talk about in more detail. Um, and we just haven't seen in general, I don't think, the, the match of retail price points with the cost of raw materials uh, as they're coming into our supply chains. Um, where there's looming critical input issues for fertiliser, uh, urea and glyphosate particularly into next year. Uh, and we've always got the ever-present geopolitical risks 
Um, we need uninterrupted access to trade, uh, given that um, around 70% of what we produce is exported. I guess back on the farm and in business uh, or any agribusiness really, costs and inefficiencies can creep up on you when things are really good. I mean, we're not long out of an incredibly difficult drought for a lot of places. Um, that's certainly something I'm ever conscious of. Um, there's, there's a need to consider your own strategies should this come around again. Um, hopefully it doesn't, but I guess what we really hope is that this season and last season have been an opportunity to really uh, build or rebuild the war chest to, to weather any kind of future disruption. And, um, and I guess underneath that, just being really cost focused, um, being efficiency focused, really is a, a lot of the answer on margin and profitability um, and remaining sustainable. So um, I think let's enjoy the great times. Let's hope there's no interruptions to harvest as we get into that. It's never over until it's over, um, but it's hard to imagine things looking a lot better collectively and um, may that continue and let's hope we're counting those numbers as we get into the summer. So for now, though, let's get into some of our commodities in more detail and welcome Maddie to the microphone. And Maddie, I just touched on food price pressure uh, earlier. What are we seeing right now? Yeah, hi, Mark. Yeah, that's right. We haven't uh, talked about food prices in a little while, and it's always a really interesting topic to come back to. Um, and it has been quite topical in the news for in the past couple of quarters. To summarise, Australian food prices are definitely on the way up. Um, in the past year, they've gone up 0.7%, which is quite a significant increase in just a year alone. Um, but there is a, a clear ongoing trend um, upwards for, for all food prices, really. But the main story that stems out of that is beef prices. So there were, between 2016 and 2018-19, there was a real hiatus or ceiling in, in the retail cost of beef that most people surmised that the supermarkets and butchers had decided that Australian consumers would only pay so much for their steak or mince. Since then, and obviously since uh, salary prices have gone, um, have skyrocketed, um, since then uh, beef prices have gone uh, through the roof as well. So in the past year alone, the retail cost of beef has gone up 13%, which is huge, really, when you consider um, how long they, spe they spent um, at a relatively stagnant rate. The in interesting thing is this doesn't really seem to have flowed through to consumption as yet. We're not quite sure if that's a flow-on effect of COVID and not um, not eating in restaurants and takeout uh, venues and um, whether it being a factor of cookie at home, we, we're not quite sure. But it doesn't seem as yet that people are pulling back on how much beef they buy. Anecdotally, however, people are saying that uh, people are buying the cheaper cuts, so it's not quite so common for a family to be fed on steak for a night. It's more likely to be mince or chuck. Um, so that seems to be an impact, but we'll have to wait till after COVID really comes out of the system and the restaurants open back up again so we know what that incre increase in retail beef prices means um, for consumption. You then put it in contrast with the other, other meat prices. So lamb is up 2% in the past year. So that real discrepancy between beef price increases and lamb price increases is actually providing some cover for lamb and there's a bit of shift from beef to lamb consumption. So lamb's doing really well at the moment. Chicken prices are steady and pork's actually dropped about 0.6% in the last year. Having said that, they haven't really increased in consumption. So it's a really interesting dynamic we've got going on. If you then pull back a little bit longer, uh, for have a, a bit of a long-term look at it, if you look at the sale yard prices, it, the indicators for uh, lamb and for beef against the retail prices, it actually seems that what's happening now is a bit of a correction for those years of stagnant retail prices. And actually, we're getting retail beef prices back up to a level where they should be and are moving in tandem with sale yard prices. So it actually seems to be less of a more of a, re, a correction rather than a rather than an anomaly. Um, if we have a quick look at the other um, the other categories of food, there are two really interesting stories for me. Fruit and vegetable prices, and people have talked about this quite often, 
um, have jumped really significantly based on a number of factors in the last quarter alone. So fruit and veggie prices, primarily fruit prices in this in this case, have gone up 5% in the last quarter alone. Now that's based on two factors, a lack of available labour for picking, obviously, um, has meant a lack of um, a, a certain lack of supply and an increase in costs. Um, for farmers. And then also um, a lack of international shipping and increase in shipping prices has meant that our Australia's reliance in some horticulture areas on cheaper imports is being tested somewhat as we can't get the supply in. So that's a really interesting one to play out into the future and we'll see how that, um, and we can really, sorry, what I mean to say is that we can really see how a lack of labour and a lack of sh shipping can really affect um, the consumer's wallet. Um, the other one is cereal and bread products, um, which has stayed remarkably stable for a number of years now, um, which is also very interesting given the number, the amount of increase in global prices and Australian prices of wheat and other grains. So to summarise all of that, there is a definite increase in food prices, but I actually want to talk really quickly more broadly about what this means for Australian households' wallets and what does it mean in a global context. So if we have a quick look um, at the trends in Australian household income spend on food, it's been in really solid decline since the 1960s. And I would have to say in the past couple of years, it appears to have bottomed out. So we have to ask the question, um, are increased food prices actually going to be a thing of our future? Um, if we look at a global level, it very certainly is. So uh, global food prices are now the highest since 2011. And on a global level, there is a real definite reversal of the trend in um, decrease in prices. So again, decrease in global food prices had been happening since the 1960s. Um, and in recent years, that has very markedly turned around. And most people are anticipating on a global level that food, level, food prices are on the increase for a sustained period of time. So we have to ask whether that will flow through to Australian households' expenditure and can we expect our future to be marked with some higher food, food prices across the board? Um, the answer isn't in yet, but interesting for everyone to talk about. Well, you would tend to think so, but I guess with all these things, we're always looking for where the winners and losers are, for want of a better expression. Is there a case also in this that it's not just at the, the food and farmer level, but also, and you know, how sustainable is COVID, but the additional costs in the supply chain that have come from density limits and having to shut businesses down, the increased costs of management and sanitisation and practices, um, then you've got overlays of sustainability and managing energy costs and towards renewables and all of these kind of things. I yeah. mean, it, it really all points one way, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it does. Um, and I think we've also come to an end where those huge technological advances we had sort of through the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, particularly when it came to cropping, but those huge productivity gains we were making have sort of petered out. So that trend towards lower food prices based off lower production costs um, is, is less of a factor. And as you say, all those other factors are now weighing on, on production. And there's also, there's also the competition for biofuels. So you see in a global level that the commodity making the greatest increase in prices are oils. So there's huge increase for vegetables, for, for biofuels, which is also playing into the whole, the whole global system. So everything... Uh, looks towards higher retail prices, in, in my opinion, but we'll have to see how it plays out, especially after COVID. Yeah, and the um, and the trade bit's interesting as well, and this is where, from a production point of view, uh, it will vary from commodity to commodity quite widely. But if you take um, items like avocados or strawberries, for example, you'll see price pressures and and supply. Uh, coming into a market where um, prices reflect that supply mm. and consumers benefit. And and without that sort of export alternative, farmers become a bit more captive to the domestic supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, to be honest, people are seeing that with strawberries on the shelf right now. You know, there's a, there's a huge amount of strawberries going for incredibly cheap and Australian households are having a lovely time as a result. Um, but I have to say, when it comes to horticulture, fruit and veg have always been very volatile for their retail prices, primarily because we're either a fully import, import market and we get most of our stuff from Chile and so forth, um, or we're locally produced only. So we fruit and veg prices always have been fairly up and down, but it's it's really these um, 
the increases in oils, cereals, sugar and meat, which are really playing out in the global market. Yeah, thanks, Maddie. And, and we'd love to think technology and innovation will come the way of fresh produce in particular, so that for what is a very, not popular, but essential, healthy um, offering to consumers of Australia remains accessible um, because it's an important part of nutrition and well-being for our own um, population. And so seeing it play out where everybody benefits would be the best possible thing. Um, thanks a lot for that. And uh, we touched on beef uh, briefly there, but Michael, I think we're over to you now to explore the beef industry in more detail. Thank you very much, Mark. Yes, the beef industry is always another story, it seems, when we look at it every month or two, of where are prices, are they still at record levels? And if we're starting to sound like a broken record, then we can't help it. Beef prices, the benchmark Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, has yet again hit another level. It's gone through 1,040 cents a kilogram uh, to hit a record of 10.42 cents at the start of October 2021 and continues to rise. What's pushing it up at the moment? Well, basically a lot of the same factors that we've seen before, it's definitely being pushed by the restockers who are paying a higher price than the processors and the feedlotters. They're not the majority of buyers. The feedlotters at the moment are the majority of buyers, which is another story. But the restockers are seeing the onset of the spring weather with good rain, meaning more feed out there, and therefore a chance to build their own uh, herds on their own places up more and more. So those prices continue to get pushed up by, by people building their farms again. On the other side, that demand side, and it's the geopolitical issues or some of the global uh, export issues which have really impacted that one more and more. Some of them have made the headlines, others not as much as they should have. We in the beef industry are all aware of, over the past few months, Argentina temporarily stopping all its beef exports to keep a lid on its domestic beef prices and ensure there was enough beef for its own domestic consumers, and then starting exports again, but to a much reduced degree. And remember that Argentina has exported a lot more beef to big markets like China than Australia has in recent years. Recent weeks have seen Brazil really come to the forefront. Brazil temporarily suspended its own exports to China after discoveries of BSE in two cows, but discovery nevertheless. And China, whilst uh, in the past having resumed exports of Brazilian beef after BSE scares after two weeks, still hasn't, uh, as of today, taken back Brazilian beef. Not only that, but another of a number of other major beef importers in the world, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Indonesia, Iran, have all banned Brazilian beef as well. What does this mean for Australian producers, processors and feedlotters? It means that the nervousness about world beef availability is still there. It means the nervousness about needing to procure reliable and safe supplies of beef will have gone up even more, and that puts Australia at the forefront front runs again. So what does it mean for prices going forward? It means that Australian beef will be in demand. It means that supply will be tight because the restocking continues. So don't look for a huge downward pressure on price anytime soon. It's a, well, I mean, I, I must say um, for a, a Western Victorian at heart, you must be very excited, I would have thought, with all of that at the upcoming wiener sale potential into the summer. Absolutely. And interesting, as I say, we head into spring with good forecasts for good rain going forward and temperatures to get warmer. If we look back over the past few months, we certainly can't complain about lack of rain, but things were possibly slightly colder than we thought it would be. So the feed could have been better, but now looking good. We're looking to some very healthy cattle out there. We often see in the last couple of months of the year that prices go down slightly when a lot of cattle come onto the market as producers think about that there may be slightly less feed in the summer. But you are absolutely right. When those weaner sales happen across Victoria, across New South Wales and South Australia in January, when the restockers are out, when the new corporate investors in the beef supply chain are out as well to restock and take advantage of this confidence, we could potentially some of the highest prices paid in some of these sales that we've seen in a very long time, possibly ever, and really continuing that confidence in the beef sector. Yeah, and the restockers are still really active in the market. I guess um, for all of this rebuild and the high prices that 
we thought were the highest prices, even going back a year or two, you're buying into a longer cycle often. What do you think about the next two or three years as opposed to the next six or 12 months when it comes to those prices being paid and the risk or opportunity that comes with that? Well, we go back to the the super basics of, of fundamentals of prices, supply and demand, even less than economics 101, perhaps economics one. As far as the supply goes, it's going to depend on the rain. The outlook is good at the moment, but every day we are one day closer to the next drought, wherever it may be. So if we're talking the next year or two, things are looking reasonably good at the moment as uh, the, the outlook for production and feed continues to be good. And while grain prices have gone up because of world markets, there's still enough grain out there to make the economics of feedlots combined with strong demand for grain-fed beef, particularly from Japan and Korea, good. So that side of it is looking good. Let's take the demand side, and obviously export demand drives so much of cattle prices and producer and processor confidence at the moment. Those lingering fears about food safety coming out of some of Australia's competitors aren't going to go away in a hurry. They never do. They can take decades, as the European beef exporters will tell you. So that means confidence for the Australian market. At the same time, as so many economies come out of the big COVID disruptions and learn to live with the new normal, expect in particularly Asian markets demand for beef to go up again, so that bodes well. So we always have cautious optimism, but it's reasonable optimism. Thanks very much, Michael. All right, Maddie, we've got the crop starting to come in, I guess, in some northern parts and, and western, uh, northern Western Australia. We've looked at the yield forecasts. Um, it looks closer to reality, although we had some frost impacts along the way. But over to you to detail um, all that's playing out now that our harvest is very close. Yeah, it's actually not too much of a change from a couple of months ago in that global prices are looking really strong. The domestic harvest is also looking very strong, a few localised weather issues. But in general, we're looking to be on track to the second largest uh, crop harvest on our record. So all looking up from that perspective. I'll go into that in a little bit more detail in a minute, but I'll start off with global prices again, as we usually do, because this is a globalised industry. Um, They're on the way up again, essentially, as a result of the US and Canadian drought and the and Northern Hemisphere dry conditions, um, there's concerns left, right and centre about supply. So at the end of uh, last month, the USDA released their small grains report into the US harvest, um, and it showed that it's they're expecting the smallest US wheat harvest since 2002. So that sent real uh, rumblings to the industry, um, and the future market surged as a result. And it also uh, fed through to uh, concerns over its stocks because US stocks for wheat uh, fell almost 20% or were forecast to fall almost 20%, corn down 36% and soybean down about 51%. So that feeds through all sorts of sectors in the in prices and in, uh, through to Australian production. It's in, an interesting one though because the industry seems to be very nervous and prices seem to be going up regardless. So behind that USDA report on the US harvest is the USDA forecast into the international market. And that actually says an increase in, in, in global supply of wheat. So in the middle of September, USDA released their international report and that showed an increase of about 3.4 million tonne in global supply and that was weighed off against the US fall of about 1.4 million tonne in forecast for um, US wheat. So despite that, prices are still on the way up. So obviously it's a very nervous industry at the moment. Um, so that increase in, in production uh, globally is mainly coming from Australia but also from China and India and a few other places like that. It is notably not coming from Canada, Russia or the US uh, where, where consumption is da- uh, sorry production is down. And that's probably the issue that it's the, the real major exports that are having bad seasons in the, at the moment and they're the one, and that's the reason why the industry is very, very nervous. Um, that's also uh, playing out into... Uh, expectations for 2022 with expectations for plantings in Russia and the US uh, looking to be lower. So we're not actually really expecting a a mass turnaround as uh, farmers plant wheat to take advantage of the strong prices across the globe because actually grains have strong prices across the board, whether it be for barley or canola or sorghum, the prices are all looking fairly, fairly strong. 
Um, so if we go quickly across to uh, our domestic market, as I said, the ABES has forecast the second highest crop in Australian history, second only to last year's. And we're having a few glitches. Uh, WA, there were some dry and frosty conditions, which seem to have taken a few a, a bit off the harvest forecast. Um, but those rains that came through recently um, provided a strong finish to much of the eastern seaboard. So it looks it looks quite strong. Um, and regardless, it's it's going to be a very very good year, maybe with some localized localized impacts. Then we might move to canola quickly. Canola is expected to have a record crop this year. Um, prices are, as everyone knows, through the roof. Um, global stocks are down about 25% um, this year, so there's obviously a huge pressure in supply. Add to that the rising crude oil price, which is increasing demand for vegetable oils, um, including canola um, for biofuel, um, and a lot of soybean, um, which is a substitute for canola, is going off to, to biofuel. So it's all looking very strong for, um, for canola. Barley also looking for, um, at the third highest crop in Australia's uh, history. Um, and again, barley prices are doing incredibly well, primarily off the back of Chinese demand um, as they their pig herd recovers from African swine fever. Now, obviously, the Chinese buying isn't coming to Australia, but they are taking up a lot of that global pool and that global pool is, is uh, dramatically reduced. So that's pushing prices higher across the board. So for the second year, I guess we see barley escape what might have been when it came to the concentration risk we were carrying to China um, and the dilemma confronted by not being able to access that market. I guess the follow-up season uh, in the Northern Hemisphere is going to be super critical here where um, you've, got, you've got record production along with record price almost in a few commodities, key ones being canola uh, mainly. And you know the 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 if you had confidence in production going forward, there are still probably some really good price opportunities to be seen. All right, over to Bryony now. Um, we've we're finishing off the mixed farming segment, having covered beef and grains. Now talking sheep and wool. Uh, still a pretty good story, I would say. Bryony, over to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, similar to beef, the restocker and trade lambs are seeing consistently strong prices with over 900 cents a kilo uh, for the last two months and restockers actually edging closer to the 1,000 cents a kilo, which hasn't been seen since March last year. So the record-breaking lamb prices um, for especially for twin-bearing ewes, is setting up a strong season for sheep farmers. The ongoing good conditions have seen ewes in providing better than average lambing conditions uh, and really strong lambing percentages. This has been supported by some improved pregnancy scanning technologies uh, helping the lamb survival rates um, and obviously really supported there by the great conditions on farm. So the price of lamb has uh, been supported by some strong demand from overseas market, particularly the, in the US. Um, some are calling it the new Wagyu, um, with also Japanese finding a taste for the meat as well. So they're seeing it as a low fat, high protein, high iron substitute. Um, so the marketing there for the health qualities and of course it being a uniquely Australian product. Uh, and young buyers particularly seeing it as an exciting new sort of product there for them to be eating, not to mention when we can sell the provenance and the story behind uh, Australia's lamb. Well, long may that continue. And of course, um, we're unique in this industry where we're carrying a significant amount of production and the percentage of global trade. So, uh, should those things continue to strengthen, um, price support would would uh, be enhanced, and we still don't really see that movement in flock number. Norway may we see it rise a lot in the medium term. So, on that basis, you'd be thinking things are pretty good. Do you do you expect to see numbers to rise, or, or we have? I think we spoke last time about really hitting close to the sustainable number of sheep in our landscape. Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, similar to the discussion that we were having around beef earlier in the year, how, how much higher can it can the price of lamb go? Um, you know, it could, could really continue on that upward trajectory. 
Well, plenty of confidence in there. It's been seen in some of the stud and um, and prime U sales uh, recently as well. So let's hope all that hangs on, which uh, it has every chance of, I think, uh, looking at things. What about the the wool side of sheep, Bryony? I notice a bit of interruption to trade at the moment on Chinese processing. Um, outside of that or including that, uh, where are we at? Yeah, that's right. We've seen some um, reduced capacity in processing in China um, over recent weeks. So fingers crossed that's only short-term impact and won't impact long-term, particularly as we head into the European winter. Uh, there are some expectations that it's going to be a cooler than average winter uh, over there in the northern hemisphere. So that would usually see demand for wool increasing um, and especially as we're seeing the European markets and the US coming out of those lockdowns. So that would generally see uh, increased consumer de demand for things like wool, um, with people looking to rebuild their wardrobes and um, who knows, potentially heading back into the office and, and buying some of those uh, nice fine wool suits that um, possibly have been ageing in their wardrobes for a while now. As you mentioned, the studs have been going really well uh, recently, whilst they haven't been able to get to the ag shows to s show off their um, animals online with some tech savvy breeders even uh, jumping onto social media. And um, yeah, we've seen some record prices for rams there. Yeah, fantastic stuff. And hopefully that buying back into the wool market is, is just the spasmodic interruption not necessarily lasting. I, I guess that will depend on the inventory held in China, which is always a little bit hard to be certain about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also the demand for those finer microns is still really increasing, particularly in towards the European market. So hopefully we'll see that continue regardless. Well, we do see that in the sales, don't we? That 17, 19, even to 21 micron performing or outperforming the broader broader microns. So um, for most of our specialist uh, merino producers, that places them in pretty good stead for through the spring and into next calendar year uh, on both the meat and the wool side, I think. Thank you, Bryony. All right, Michael, over to you to talk dairy now. Record farm gate prices, improved conditions and a hint of improving supply in Australia as well. Again, adding to the mix of stellar commodity stories in Australia right now. Over to you, if you could give us some detail on that one. Absolutely. Look, thanks, Mark. Milk is a good story. The dairy industry is arguably in a very good position heading into the last part of 2021. Before we have a quick chat about the farm conditions, probably the biggest thing happening in dairy for the rest of the year, which is going to have implications, is the changes in ownership of Fonterra Australia. Now, we've seen changes in dairy company ownership over the last decade, and a number of them have made the headlines. But why this one is particularly interesting is because what it's going to bring out is who out there in the investment community, out of agribusiness companies, investors, private equity, will come into the mix possibly to look to uh, invest in Fonterra Australia or to buy it if a majority stake is out there and the value that will pay, they will pay. And what this will indicate and be a great indicator of is what is the confidence out there by the big investors into the Australian dairy sector in terms of the fundamentals of what the demand will be for dairy products, both domestically and export as well, what the value that can be created will be. And that will have ripple effects right back down the supply chain. Over the years, and the dairy industry is well aware of this, after the peak in production, well above 10 billion litres, there's been that reduction in the milking herd, there's been that reduction in consolidation of dairy farms as well, with a number of them going into beef uh, farms, as it's been seen as a more attractive investment by some. But could this be the start, depending on where this sale goes, of a renewal in confidence of investment into the industry? And what that would bring would be increased capex into infrastructure, into technology as well. So absolutely watch what happens over the next few months with that side of the industry. 
At the farm level, yes, the good news continues. The good season has meant that uh, the things have been looking up. There was a bit of a lull in milk production when things got quite wet in July. We saw milk production go down slightly, but the outlook for the rest of the year is things to increase up by about 2%, but a rise nevertheless to between 8.9 billion to 9 billion litres of production. In terms of input cost, always such a big issue for the dairy industry. The rain has meant that water costs have been down. There's also been that impact on fodder costs. A lot of hay out there has meant those prices have gone down. Yes, grain prices have had an impact as they've gone higher based on the global factors that Maddie talked about. But overall, input costs have gone down for the dairy industry as well. And what's happened at the demand level has been fascinating too. Last year, when COVID disruptions happened in Australia, everybody rushed out and panic bought a lot of dairy products as well. Things have gone back to normal. So we've seen a slight reduction over last year's what we'll call artificial highs, but a gradual upward trend continuing for dairy consumption. And as the population continues to try and get healthier, as populations in developed countries continue to do, and as perhaps there is an emphasis and more thought on what diets and health may be, as populations come out of the COVID disruption into the future ahead, we're likely to see that strong demand for dairy products going forward. And the last point to make on this, because it's been in the headlines, is the competition between dairy-based milk products and what we'll call protein-based beverages or other milks, which can be a controversial issue. Absolutely, the sales of these other beverages coming out of things such as oats, such as rice, such as almonds as well, have been going up. But what the figures would tend to show is that while consumers have given them a try, it hasn't had a major impact on the demand or on the sale of uh, milk-based dairy products. Michael, do you think that's because um, that first-time user or trier <laughs> or people buying um, new liquids on a trial basis do it just once and revert to the staple, so only so much of that perhaps sticks? This is often the case with so many products, whether they be food, whether they be technology, uh, and particularly at that cheaper level. Yes, uh, consumers will often give something a try. They've heard the hype. They want to see what it's like. They want to give it a taste. But uh, a lot of the bulk of the population will go back to the same kind of thing they've been having for years. The market for these kind of beverages will inevitably grow. That's going to happen as that comes through younger consumers, as diets evolve, as they always have, as they always will. But for a lot of buyers, they've given it that one try. They'll go back to what they've always had. And in the and in the corporate side with the Fonterra opportunity, uh, the, the converse of what you were saying is perhaps that nobody steps in. And, and that might also have a bit to do with the terms that might go with any kind of transfer. Do you do you have a view of what it would mean if uh, Fonterra were to continue with this business? Even then, and at the moment, we're yet to see whether Fonterra will seek to retain a majority stake in the business, uh, whether it will allow a new player to take a majority stake, what some of the other terms will be. But regardless of what happens, there will still be views to be taken depending who comes to invest what value is there if things go to an ipo what happens with that value over the the short to, to medium term following that as well so you're absolutely right if it's a big result if the strong competition for a majority stake that could signal a lot of confidence hypothetically if things go the other way as well that could also be a bellwether for the industry so wherever it goes it's going to be telling in some way for where investors and the market sees the dairy industry going forward from here. All right. Thank you, Michael. It's it's great to see um, things looking so much better in dairy at the moment compared to two years or so ago. Um, not just the cost of feed and availability of water, but the build-up again of on-farm fodder reserves, I think, uh, helping suppliers keep their costs down um, and stand them in good stead coming into the summer and um, the levy, the dairy levy attracting a bit of commentary at the moment as well. And I know within our own work, we would source and reference the Australian um, dairy situation and outlook. And um, I think there's some really valuable um, output comes from Dairy Australia in, in supporting farmers and getting great outcomes for the industry. So 
hopefully that one plays out smoothly as well. Adelaide, never a dull moment in economics all the time, of course, but these days even more so with the shifting tides of COVID and the responding economies. Um, what are the what, what's in the headlines um, at the moment and uh, what can we expect in the next little while? With Delta lockdowns continuing, it can sometimes feel like we are in a, a really big economic slump and, you know, uh, in previous recessions, it has taken a really long time to get out of those economic downturn conditions. But in 2021, we have seen some really excellent resilience in a lot of the economic data. We do think GDP will be pushed down uh, by about 3.3% in Q3 2021 due to all the Delta lockdowns. We've also seen over 200,000 people lose work in New South Wales since the start of their lockdown. But we also see a lot of data that says that this is going to be a really short-lived. Last year, when we did see a recession from uh, the COVID lockdowns, we also saw that GDP was actually back above its pre-pandemic uh, size from the March quarter of 2021. And we expect that in a few quarters, we will see this 3.3% drop completely recovered. A few reasons for this include that we are still seeing elevated job ads. ANZ job ads has declined by less than 7% over the past three months from a pretty high rate. This compares to a 64% decline last year. We've also seen that strong fiscal support has continued with disaster payments, with the temporary full expensing scheme for businesses uh, and with a pretty strong sense that we will see some more fiscal support to cement the rebound, including, you know, major projects, construction and, and continuing household income support in one way or another as well. Um, we think that once New South Wales and Victoria do see a full reopening, uh, we'll see uh, employment growth come back. We expect to see uh, some pretty strong economic growth in Q4, um, which will push the annual growth of GDP into a positive range through the year to 2021, and then a really strong rebound to about 5% growth over 2022. All of this will help wages growth and, and inflation eventually, but we still don't see wage growth getting to 3% until late 2023 and inflation above 2% until around the middle of 2023, which means that interest rates will stay super low until then. We will see bond purchases set to continue until late next year. We think the cash rate will be sitting at 0.1% until 2024. So, you know, Overall, strong economic growth backed by fiscal support, lots of household income support coming as employment growth is expected to bounce back quickly, but then those wage and inflation numbers staying a little bit low for the next couple of years. If there is another big COVID outbreak, um, especially one that, you know, does get past some of that vaccination protection, that could be something that prompts further shutdowns and completely uh, takes those GDP forecasts out of date. But we could also see things go the other way with spending up, pacing our expectations, stronger pent-up demand than expected, and even faster wage growth and inflation. On balance, we do think that we will see a pretty quick rebound, um, but it is uncharted water, so things could go either way. One thing that I think is really important for the uh, agriculture sector is that we have continued to see really strong rural exports. They were up 11% in August, uh, particularly um, driven by cereal grains and wool. We're also expecting to see the Australian dollar be on average around 75 cents USD next year, and that should continue to support that export competitiveness. And then for the domestic market, that household income support and strong employment projections will really help people have that discretionary income to be able to spend on agriculture products locally as well. Thanks. Well, Michael, we've heard all about um, the strength in a lot of our agri-commodities at the moment. Uh, one thing that's on the top of mind with everybody uh, in addition is fertiliser prices and even availability of fertiliser to get our crops finished and even get the next crop in. Uh, what's going on at the minute? Absolutely, Mark. Uh, we're seeing a situation with fertiliser, seeing price rises that the world really hasn't seen since about the 2008 period, uh, at a time when there really was that scramble to get crops growing back then. Uh, but fertiliser prices have gone up rapidly recently across the world. 
This is due to three major factors um, and totally beyond Australia's control. One was Hurricane Ida, which hit Louisiana in the US. And whilst we don't get a lot of our urea from there, the fact that it knocked out things like the world's largest nitrogen facility meant that there was less fertilizer to go around. So that caused part of the shortage. The second one was to do with gas prices in Europe. Gas prices in Europe have gone up more than 10 times. And when that happens, it means that European fertilizer producers either have to shut down uh, because gas is prohibitively expensive or they have to raise their prices rapidly. And the third one's to do with fertilizer exports out of China. Because of the other two points, and because fertilizer was becoming more expensive, China's doing what it can to keep fertilizer prices down for its own domestic farmers. And as part of that, China has limited its own exports to quite a degree. In fact, local governments in China have asked the state-owned enterprises, who make up the majority of fertilizer producers in that country, to cease their exports. What does that mean? It means that fertilizer prices across the board have increased rapidly globally. It means there is less to go around, and it means that is going to be a big consideration for Australian farmers heading into 2022. So in a a global context, does this mean that whoever pays the most gets access, or is it not that simple? Look, I suppose that's the way things work, well, fundamentally in economics, uh, the way we work with our our agricultural commodities, the people who pay the most uh, when we see prices getting driven up for meat, getting driven up for wheat as well. That's when they may, the buyers out there in the world may sense there's a shortage and and look to pay more to, to get those supplies. So that's exactly what we're seeing now. And the fact that we've looked at those factors coming out of the US, coming out of Europe and coming out of China and tried to look at how long it will take to correct this, we could be seeing those high prices lasting well into 2022. And there's obviously some supply supply shocks in all of this, but often is the case that high prices just tend to attract higher costs um, as a way of curing the margin that's ever available in farming. Is there a bit of that playing out here as well, maybe? Look, that's absolutely right. And we have to say that that is the case. For most producers in Australian agriculture, livestock, grain particularly, things have been very good. We all know that. High prices of beef, high prices of grain, high prices of sheep. And because of the good season, at the other end, inputs have been reasonably low. With all that rain, people have needed less feed. They've needed less fertiliser because the pasture's been good. Even water prices have been down for dairy farmers and others who've needed that. So it has been a good year. While nobody wants these high prices, it is in a way part of that correction as well to, to bring things back, particularly margins, closer to where they were in what we'd call an average year. Yeah, and and as commodity producers, I guess there's always a focus to efficiency and productivity, um, but but you know sustainability with all its meanings uh, plays a big role these days as well. Do we think that um, managing the sort of physical environmental sustainability and all of this features a bit more actively than in the past, where for example, cheap ready access to to fur might encourage more use purely to generate more cash, even though the margin is in decline, um, that probably isn't the response you'd tend to see in today's world, not in a developed market anyway. Look, they are two factors. And while they're probably not linked, they're both going to be a big part of the coming decade. If you were to look back over Australian fertiliser usage over the last 50 years, you could almost argue it works in cycles. Uh, as as agronomy changes and different fertiliser combinations change, when we have a drier 10 years and fertiliser usage changes, if there is going to be one major theme of the, say, 2020s in fertiliser usage there, it's going to be the impact of whether we call it sustainability, whether we call it the impacts of carbon farming, uh, whether we look at some of the alternative fertilisers and some of the alternative uh, management philosophies of agriculture we see coming onto the market, they are going to play a big role. And and while a lot of farmers will continue to use the same levels of fertiliser they had, we're probably going to see a structural change going forward over the years. It has yet to play out, uh, but it's going to be a different kind of a decade. You know, I guess we're seeing a lot more technology and precision agriculture um, make these costs go further in a lot of better farming systems. But, you know, it all points towards, I guess, maybe um, higher 
food and agri-commodity prices ultimately, as this is yet perhaps another scarce resource and cost that has to be factored in to what consumers ultimately pay? Well, they are the two parts that obviously play out against each other. On one hand, when we have efficiency, when we have greater specific application of fertiliser, so we need less inputs, less pesticides, less labour, uh, and all of those inputs, that means greater potential uh, for revenue there. But on the other hand, when there are those issues which are going to make some parts of agricultural production higher, yes, that could definitely see upward pressure on food prices. And in the short term, at least, while it probably won't be a huge issue, high prices of fertiliser, if they last for the next year, could have the potential to put some upward pressure definitely on production costs, grain and livestock. And because it's global, there could be some indication that there could be a contribution to food inflation. So that's something the world will need to watch for the next year, particularly the developing countries. And one last one, I guess. Um, we're exposed to a global production uh, base, um, but what of the alternatives and what of the um, more environmental sort of driven solutions to fertility beyond synthetic fertilisers um, that might be our future? Is that something that's ready plug into farming or still got a fair way to go, do you think? Well, perhaps this could be the impetus in the same way that if there was one of the few silver linings of the disruption of the last year was to do with uh, an increase in efficiency and automation in the food supply chain, maybe we will see this speed up the research and development into some of those alternatives. So Australian farmers particularly are less vulnerable in future to fertiliser changes, to fertiliser prices, and they speed up researching some of those alternatives. Fascinating stuff. Thanks, Michael. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Thanks very much to our analysts, Michael Whitehead, Madeline Swan, Bryony Callender and Adelaide Timbrell. Uh, we look forward to a great spring and speaking to you again in December. So bye for now and hopefully um, we get to see some of you out in the landscape as our travel restrictions might ease further. Thanks and bye for now.